Good evening. Thanks for coming tonight. My name is Andrew, and I'm the director of media here, and filling in for Michael. I know you guys have been crawling through the life of Hezekiah. <laughs> we're going to take yet another break from that, and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians tonight. Before we begin, I want to just pray. Father, we are here for you tonight. You are the reason that we gather together, the reason that we have something in common. Father, I pray that you would move this evening in this place, that we would be sanctified tonight, that we would walk away from here more like you than when we walked in. Father, teach us from your word, because your word is perfect. Father, I pray that you would protect me from error tonight, and that you would speak, that we would hear your voice. Father, I pray for those listening online, either live or recording, that you would that you would hold their attention. Not me, but that you would hold their attention. We need to hear from you. We are desperate to hear from you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're just going to jump right in. In 2 Corinthians 5 is where we're going to be. This is, at least in my experience, one of the lesser read books of the New Testament. I hope that you've been through it before. One thing that I love doing, it is always fascinating to me to read through a book in one sitting. I don't do it every time I open up my Bible, obviously, but uh, you get so many different things out of that exercise than when you just go through devotionally one chunk at a time. So I hope that if you haven't before, that you would take time to sit down and read 2 Corinthians from start to finish. You get the whole picture, and you get, you get to see what Paul is really doing throughout the letter. There's some really fascinating things about this letter that make it unique. 2 Corinthians is widely considered to be actually the fourth letter to the church in Corinth. What we have in our Bible is often considered, more accurately, second and fourth Corinthians. We just don't have the copies of first and third Corinthians. Um, And so we're filling in the holes with the conversation between Paul and the church in Corinth, and there is lots there. It's a very active, vibrant relationship that he has with this church. And the reason is because there's struggle, there's strife, there's disagreement, there's tension. And Paul, when you read 2 Corinthians in particular, this is one of his most emotional letters that he writes. And it, it, sometimes it's hard to see that when you just read a little passage But when you read it from start to finish, you see just how much Paul really cared for this church. It's it's really astounding. The way that he, I mean, he cares for all the, the churches that he's ministering to. But the way that he talks to the Corinthians in this letter is is unique. He has this tone. You really sense this tone of anguish that that is born out of a place of deep love for these people. So he, part of the reason why he, he needed to write this letter was uh, to outline their relationship. He was planning on going. He actually, when he, he planted the church in Corinth, he spent a year and a half there. And the story's in Exodus, or I'm sorry, Acts 18. He meets Priscilla and Aquila, and they help him plant the church. And he's able to stay there for a year and a half, just ministering, building up this church, pouring into them. He leaves, and it becomes apparent that false teachers come in and try to 
basically shoot down Paul from while he's absent. They try to come and destroy his reputation, and they start spreading false teaching. There's also just a lot of immorality. The first, uh, one of the letters we don't have, which is probably the third letter in the, in the series, uh, seems to be at, at, at least one thing that Paul addresses is this issue of sexual immorality in the church that they're tolerating, and that is something that he also talks about in 1 Corinthians. And so there, there are issues that the church is dealing with over time, this, these persistent issues. And at one point, Paul is trying to make his way to Corinth to see them again. And in their exchanges back and forth, what happens is he, he realizes that if he goes to Corinth, it would actually do more harm than good because there's so much tension. And so he instead chooses not to go to Corinth, but to write a pretty harsh letter. And he references that letter in 2 Corinthians about how he, he did not mean to grieve them, but he was glad that they were grieved because it led to repentance and restoration. So it's really just thinking about Paul's relationship with this church is just fascinating, even with the stuff that's not in the text itself. The context is, is really interesting. So I would strongly encourage you to just read through straight through from start to finish uh, in as few sittings as possible. You really get a different, a different picture. So in chapters... Four through seven, uh, he starts off with in the beginning. He's um, what happened before this letter. The reason why he wrote this letter was because the there were some teachers, like I said, who were trying to discredit Paul, and they were actually calling themselves apostles, and they were saying Paul's not a true apostle. We are the real apostles. You need to listen to us and not Paul. So he the whole purpose of this letter is he's he's pleading his case, he's making his case that he is an apostle of God, but the way he does it is really interesting. We're going to see a lot of this tonight in chapter 5. In chapter 4 through 7, he is basically outlining, he's making the strongest case he can that he is a true apostle. So leading into chapter 5, we see that the way that he's talking about his ministry is it's a ministry that was given to him from God. We see this in a lot of his letter openings. There's a few of the letters in the New Testament where he, he calls himself Paul, an apostle by the will of God. That is a, a frequent greeting. It's, it's in 2 Corinthians and it's in several other letters. What he's trying to demonstrate through that is this is a ministry that's been given to him by God. Right? It, part of that could be an authoritative statement. Right? I'm, I'm an apostle and God's the one who made me an apostle so you need to listen to what I'm going to say. But part of that is just emphasizing the fact that this wasn't his own choice. This wasn't his own ambition. This is uh, a, a task, a role that was given to him by God. And so in chapter 4 and, the, and chapter 5, the first half, what we see is he is describing his ministry, but he's doing it in passive language. And so he's really making clear that God is the one who's working through him. Paul is not trying to accomplish certain tasks or he's not trying to make things happen. He, his job is to let God work through him. And some of this comes up in our passage tonight, but the shift that happens in the second half of chapter five that we're gonna get to is he starts to talk about his active role as an apostle. What, are the, what is he doing? What's his responsibility in this role as apostle? So as we, as we start to get into the text, one question that may come into your mind is, okay, he's an apostle, what does that do with us? Keep in mind, the pastors at Evergreen are not apostles the way that Paul was an apostle. Paul clarifies in 1 Corinthians, he, he, he connects this idea of apostle with seeing the risen Christ, right, face to face, right? This idea that the apostles were those, there were, there were several kind of qualifications for an apostle or characteristics of an apostle. One of them was that they saw Jesus face to face, right? So we have the 12 uh, plus Matthias, and then we have Paul, who are appropriately called apostles as a distinct office role with, with the history of the church, and, and that really depends on which uh, Christian tradition you ask. But, but we, 
I, I, that's what I think the Bible teaches, that we're not apostles, but the word apostle means one who is sent. You may have heard that before, and we are, are absolutely sent by the Lord, and Paul, that's what Paul's talking about tonight in, in chapter 5 that we're going to see, and this is not, that idea of being sent by God to do the work of God is not unique to the apostles, but they were of a, of a different group. I'm not an apostle the same way that Paul was. But what we're going to see is that even the work of an apostle is passed along to those that he's sent to. So we're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 5. And the point, I've titled this, Whose Side Are You On? What we're going to see here is that Paul is introducing to us the topic that he's about to jump into. And he's doing so in a way that calls them to account. He's, he's challenging their idea, their concept of authority and who has the authority. So just as his apostleship is being called into question, he comes right back at them and is going to say, that's not for you to ask if I'm an apostle or not. So let's, let's get into it. Verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, that we may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So he starts off with, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Whenever you see the word therefore, you always got to ask what it's there for. So what's right before this? He's talking about how to be, to be absent in the body to be present with the Lord, and that's better, and we should want that. But he says in verse 9 of chapter 5, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So he's talking about his desire to please the Lord and the judgment that is coming for everybody. We're all going to give an account for what we've done. There are no exceptions. And so when he talks about knowing the fear of the Lord, this is, all this is wrapped up. The fear of the Lord is one of those phrases where every time I come across it, I have to kind of remind myself what that means. And I've often heard it defined as an awe or reverence for God. And, and that's true, but that's incomplete. Fearing the Lord is an idea that comes out of the Old Testament. It is all through the Old Testament. That there is some rich Bible study that you can do on that phrase, and, and I hope you will at some point. But to kind of summarize a lot of it, it, it is this, this respectful reverence for God, but it is also, in the New Testament, I mean in the Old Testament as well, but it really takes on this idea that it's, it is uh, respecting who God is and his position, and so there, there's this reverence, and there's this kind of holy fear, this, this trembling, fear and trembling, that phrase comes up in the New Testament a few times. And so we are, we have a healthy respect for him and his greatness and us and our meekness. I'll put it that way. Maybe not afraid, but we have a healthy respect for his position over us, for his authority over us. But it's not just that we understand that we are lower than him. Fearing God doesn't just mean that I understand that I am less than God or, or different than God. But it, it includes this idea of an active faith. Right, he's talking even just before this, knowing, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. Well, he was just describing how he, his aim in everything is to please the Lord. He's, he wants to please God in everything that he does. That is, is coming from a motivation of love, which he talks about explicitly in this passage. He's, he is driven by love for the Lord, which is coupled with this understanding of, of God's rightful position as judge, as the authority as the one who sits on the throne in heaven. So all that is kind of wrapped up into one idea when he's talking about the fear of the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What is he talking about? He's going to get into it. What is he trying to persuade them of? But the, the point that I want to highlight here is we, the Corinthians did uh, in that time as well, but we kind of have this idea sometimes when we sense that somebody's trying to persuade us of something, our first thought is, okay, what are you selling? What are you trying to sell? I don't want it. Whatever it is, I don't, I don't really want it. <laughs> they had the same 
resistance to persuasion. And what's interesting is that Paul here is pairing this idea of knowing the fear of the Lord and persuading others into one idea. So he, what we realize, what we learn here is that persuading is not a bad thing, right? This, this analogy is, is used often, but if you, if you have a terminal illness and I have the cure, I am absolutely going to come to you and say, you got to have this. You need this. This is good for you. And I'm going to try to persuade you to take part in that protocol, that medicine, to, to do whatever the treatment is. All right, I'm going to try to get you to do it so that you don't die. I'm persuading you in that moment, but you're, in that moment, I hope you're not asking, what are you selling? Because I'm trying to offer you life and, and restoration. Same thing here. Paul is, this idea of persuasion, as we are, th- this passage is there's so much goodness here that the gospel is going to be made clear here. Don't let the fear of, of their response, maybe their coldness or their aversion to persuasion, don't let the fear of that response keep you from trying to persuade others of who God is. This is a biblical thing. Paul did this. And so did all the other uh, disciples, Jesus himself. This is what is motivating them, right? The fear of the Lord is actually driving their, their attempt to persuade others about who Jesus is, who God is, what, what God has done for us. We persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. He is not appealing here to reason or evidence necessarily, uh, you know, empirical evidence. Sometimes we, uh, at least in my own life, I, there have been times when I've been trying to share the gospel with somebody and I immediately assume that they are, that they need empirical evidence. Maybe evidence for the resurrection or looking at, maybe there's literary evidence from the scripture showing that this is consistent with itself. Paul says, I'm, I'm appealing to your conscience. Search deep within yourself. What we are is known to God. He says, I'm confident that I'm, I'm good with God. I'm right with him. God knows who I am and what I'm doing. He knows my motivation. He knows the work of my hands. He knows the condition of my heart. And I hope it is also known to your conscience. Sometimes that's an appropriate appeal. In Romans 1, Paul talks about how we know the truth, and yet we suppress it. And that is, that is it's okay to act on that knowledge. Now we have to be careful how we communicate in those moments. But in chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. An appeal to conscience uh, is is nothing, uh, even if it's out of necessity, right? If you're not studied up on apologetics or you don't have 100 verses memorized, an appeal to the conscience uh, is, is a worthy appeal because um, God has made himself known already. It says, we are not commending ourselves to you. This is verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He is not looking for their approval. This is a really key point. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again. It's, it's thought that he did this in uh, a previous letter that, that we don't have where he probably kind of broke character a little bit and talked about, uh, basically made his appeal to say, you should listen to me because I am, uh, I'm worthy of listening to. The difference is here, he says, 
I'm not looking for your approval. I don't need you to validate my role as apostle. You don't have the authority to do that. God is the one who has the authority to establish me as an apostle. It doesn't matter to me if you give uh, in, in a, maybe that's not the right way to say it. He's, he's saying, I don't need your approval. I'm not looking for that. What I'm trying to do is equip you with what you need to respond to those who are calling me down. What's interesting, Paul is not going to those, uh, he's not going directly, at least at this point, to those who are attacking his character, attacking his, his position. He's actually going to the Corinthians and saying, you need to be able to stand up for this. And he's going to get into this later as to why that's important. But he's calling them to make their own defense on, of him. And it's not for his own sake. That's your clue. It's not for his own sake that he's calling them to do that. They are called, he, he calls them to recognize that it is God who has put him in this position and it's their job to respect that. Now what he gets into here in verse 13 Right, so, so verse 11, 12, whose side are you on? He's saying, are you going to listen to me or not? Now, again, what he's, he's going to continue to back that up and explain why that's significant. But what he says, ultimately, is if you oppose an apostle who's been sent by God, you are opposing God himself. So he's saying, whose side are you on? Are you going to listen to me? Uh, you, know, and you're, you know deep down within you that I am who I say I am. And you need to make a decision here. So as, as we think about today, pastors at Evergreen, at other churches, we are not apostles. But the message has been passed down through Scripture. The message of the apostles has been passed down. Later on, he's going to say that we are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, Christ has entrusted the message of reconciliation to us, and therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. And, and that's a more general appeal. And so uh, this is a reminder that while we are not apostles, uh, we are called to love the Lord our God with all our minds, right, with all of our being. But part of that is thinking critically, listening to the teaching that you sit under, and asking, is this true? Right? God has given you the ability to use your mind to think critically about what you're hearing. Do not just sit and absorb everything and just assume that it's good and right. We see the testimony of the Bereans in Acts, and it says they were more excellent than those in, I think, Thessalonica, because they, they tested everything. They were searching the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Right, that's the call to us as well. We are fallible human beings. You're pastors. <laughs> we make mistakes. Check um, and decide for yourself. And then if, 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 if it becomes apparent that we really are ambassadors for Christ, then your job is to listen. This is not me trying to puff up pastors. But the reality is, if you resist those who are sent by God, you are resisting God himself. This is true in any culture, in any time period. If you resist those sent by the king, right, it was an affront against the king. Or the leader of the, of the, of the country or whatever. So he continues in verse 13, where he's, he's basically going to make his defense for what's in his heart, right? He's just said so that you can respond to those who boast about the outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. These false teachers are concerned about their influence, their, their physical appearance, right? Do they look good? Do they look the part? Do they have a big crowd? Are they seeing success in numbers? How, they're measuring their call from God according to the wrong metrics, one of the things that we see, Southern Baptists are very guilty of this. If you ever watch the annual meeting during the summer, the annual convention for Southern Baptists, we love talking about how many baptisms we have had, how many churches we've planted, how many 
You name it. We love stats, and we love talking about how, how big we are. Now, I think that there are, there are absolutely people who are doing their very best to say, this is how we measure the work that God is doing, but that's not the focus. But I'll tell you, it is so easy for our people to get confused and to look at those and say, we're, we're obedient, we're faithful, we're doing what God wants us to do because we're bigger than we were last year. We've planted more churches than we did last year. We've had more baptisms than we did last year. That is not the measure of faithful stewardship of the gospel. Those things are helpful, but when we are looking at the outward appearance, we've missed it. We have missed the point of what we're doing here, of what we're called to do. Paul says, don't, you need to be able to respond to those who boast about the outward appearance instead of boasting about what is in their heart. So Paul says, so here's what's in my heart. And the question for you on your outline is, what's in your heart? He says in verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Notice that none of that said, it's for me. Paul, look at me. He says, if, I'm, if I sound like a crazy person, I'm doing it because I'm trying to follow the Lord. I'm, I'm sending, I'm giving you the message that he has given to me. I'm doing the work that he has sent me to do. Even if it sounds like I'm a crazy person. If I'm in my, my right mind, if it sounds like I'm making sense, good. That's for you, for your own edification. He continues, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. (laughs) This part gets me excited. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ is not his love for Christ. The love of Christ that controls him, that compels him to move forward in his ministry, is the love that Christ shows to us. It's Christ's love, not Paul's love for for Christ. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. Okay, he's very clear. One has died for all. What's he talking about there? The cross of Christ, right? The crucifixion. Jesus, the perfect God-man, sent from heaven, born of the Virgin Mary, living the perfect sinless life, came to die in our place. This is what we call substitutionary atonement. Atonement is the theological word that is given to the work of Christ on the cross. A simple way to understand the word atonement that one of my professors told me once is if you break down the word atonement, you see at one meant, right? It's, it's, the, it's the work that Christ did to make us one with him. So we could be just like at one, you know, with Christ. Atonement is us being reconciled to Christ. That's exactly the case that Paul is making here. And he says the love of Christ controls us because we figured this out. Christ showed us this. This is public. This is not secret knowledge that you have to figure out on your own. This is for everybody. This was a public death and a public resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right, I passed on to you that which was most important that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to more than 500, Paul, Cephas, more than 500, or uh, Cephas, and all that. He is, this was a public display of God's power that validated everything that Jesus ever did. This was the pinnacle of his ministry. Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, we are most, of, of all people, to be pitied most. The resurrection is the most critical miracle in all of Scripture. And, and Paul is saying, we have come to understand that he died in our place. I deserve to die for my sin. Sometimes people might respond and say, oh, that's pretty harsh. You know, Ray Comfort has his strategy of walking people through the Ten Commandments, saying, well, have you, have you ever lied? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever stolen something? 
and he, he's got this system where he goes up to strangers, walks them through this, and, and he says, okay, you've broken so many of the Ten Commandments. Right? You deserve hell now. And the Bible's very clear about that. And some people might go, all I did was tell a little white lie. Why, does, why do I deserve to go to hell for that? And somebody explained to me in a really, really helpful illustration one time. If I, if I slap my brother in the face, he'll be upset with me. He, he might hit me back. And then we move on with our lives. If I slap my mom in the face, that's pretty disrespectful. I'm going to get in trouble for that. She's going to be upset with me. We're going to have to work through that. And then hopefully we come to forgive. She forgives me. I ask for an apology. She forgives me. We move on. If I slap the governor of Oklahoma in the face, okay, now I'm, I'm getting in some pretty serious trouble. If I slap the president of the United States in the face, I'm getting arrested. Right? The, the act itself was the same in all of those scenarios. Nothing changed. It was a slap in the face. But the person that I slapped, their status was different each time. And so the greater their status, the greater the offense, even though the behavior was the same the whole time. How much more offensive is it for me to slap the creator of the universe in the face? Right? That's what we do every time we sin. Doesn't matter how big or small. And because God is an infinite God, and he owns everything, and he made us, when we sin against him, that is a grave offense against him. And he says, you can't be with me. If you're not going to be holy in my presence, you cannot be with me. And that is why sinners are, are condemn themselves to hell, actually, right? We, we reject God ourselves. God doesn't send us there. We choose to go there, even if we may not put it that way. So we deserve death because of our sin. Substitutionary atonement says that Christ died in our place. Christ came to earth and died on the cross and, and, and took all the sin on him. Paul says later, and, and we'll talk about this some more, he says, he made him, for our sake, he made him to be sin. This is verse 21. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus wasn't just carrying our sins in a bag. It's not like he collected them all and put them in a trash bag and threw them over his shoulder and went to the cross. Paul makes the extreme statement that Jesus became sin. This, he, <laughs> I read a commentator and he put it this way. Jesus became the sinless sinner. The man who, who knew no sin. He had never sinned in his life. He had never, he, he had always resisted far more than we ever resist temptation. And he had, he sacrificed his eternal unity, his eternal relationship with the Father and the Spirit to become sin so that he could pay the penalty that we owed with our sin. This is not something that we as Christians ever have the opportunity to graduate from. Right? It's not like this is middle school Christianity and then we move into high school Christianity and then college Christianity and we can kind of forget about this other stuff. This is at the core of Christianity. You have no Christianity without this. There is no Christianity if he did not die for all.
by God's grace, Jesus encountered Paul on the road to Damascus and radically changed his life. I love what it says in, in season one of The Chosen. It might be episode one, and I don't remember the exact quote, but, it, but Mary Magdalene says something along the lines of, I was one way, and now I'm different. And the thing that happened in the middle was him. That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. He died for all, verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you realize that living for ourselves is a death sentence? Living for yourself is a death sentence because we reject God naturally. We, we choose to reject God. And so he came to die the death that we deserve and said, I will take the punishment so that you don't have to. And in exchange, you can have life. He says, <laughs> the way he words this, those who live for themselves, uh, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but, who, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. We live because he died. But he didn't just die. He was raised again. In Romans 6, Paul talks about how we have been united in his death and we have also been united in his resurrection. Right? That's what the picture of baptism is. Right? You, you're, you're buried in your, in your sin and you're raised with Christ. You are now united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why we submerge. That's why we, we immerse in baptism. The word in Greek actually means immerse. That's why we do that. It's a visual of what God has done in our life spiritually. We have been raised to new life with him. This is, he's talking about a fundamental change. This changes everything about us when we conclude with Paul that one has died, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him. This is not bondage. Some people will look at Christianity and say, yeah, you live for someone else, right? Some might call that slavery, my response is, yes. Slavery to the good master. Have you ever looked through the Bible to see how often the word slave is used or servant? Paul frequently refers to himself as a slave. Often our, our modern translations will translate the word doulos as servant to soften that language because we're kind of offended by the word slave. But that, it, it's actually more accurate to say slave. This idea that we are slaves of God we're, we're slaves of, of one of two things, right? We're slaves to sin. This is Romans 6. We're slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. Which one is it going to be? We are not free to do whatever we want. We don't get that choice. We, sh we shouldn't want that choice, right? We naturally gravitate towards sin. We're tempted all the time. We have to constantly fight sin in our lives. We have to put to death the old man. Paul is talking about a fundamental transformation when we are able to say with him, Christ has died for me and has given me life so that I can now live for him. I am not who I once was. I'm a new man. And that's exactly where we go from here. So he, he talks about, he, he says, uh, he's helping them to understand the difference between boasting or the difference between focusing on outward appearance versus what's in the heart. And he says, here's what's in my heart. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty that I owed. And now I can't help but serve him. Because I love him. This is, ah, I can hardly contain it. I don't even have words sometimes. This is so incredible. I hope that you spend time thinking about this. 
He says in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. On the outline, I said believers are made new. This is when Paul is trying to help them examine what's in their hearts and what's in the hearts of those who are calling themselves apostles, what Paul refers to twice in this book as super apostles. They're bragging about this. Right? What's in their heart? Paul is saying that for those who are in Christ, for believers, they have been made new. We have been recreated. This is not um, something that we work toward. This is not something that we hopefully will get to one day when we've served God long enough. This is a statement of fact. Those who are in Christ are a new creature. What's the significance of Genesis 1 and 2? What's the significance of God being the creator? If God is the creator of all things, he owns all things. Everything is his. Whatever we have, it's because he's stewarded it to us, and it's our job to be faithful stewards. Right? Going back to the slave idea, the word steward is a slave. That's a slave word. God created everything. We were created in his image, right? We bear the special mark of God that separates us from the rest of creation. This is why humans are worth infinitely more than animals, than trees, buildings, anything. Because we're made in God's image. That's, why we, that's one of the reasons why we must respect one another. We must love one another because everyone you see is also made in God's image. Then sin came into the world and marred all of creation, right? All of creation is now groaning to be restored. It's not just the human condition, the human heart that's longing to have this right, God-sized hole filled. All of creation is groaning. But when we come to Christ, we are recreated in him. And he now owns us in a new way. Right? He, we were his before, but we were in rebellion. Now we come to him willingly and say, take all of me. And God says, okay, let's get to work. This is a statement of fact. In Colossians 3, Paul, and, and in other places, Paul talks about putting off the old man, putting on the new. Right? There's a command there. And the imagery is, is, is like taking off an old jacket and putting on a new one. That's kind of the, the image. And it, and it seems to communicate that we have to strive for this. We have to work to... to to work out the old man, or the new man, right? We have to behave a certain way in order to be the new man. And these two ideas that we are made new in Christ and that we need to put on the new man, these are complementary, okay? Here's the cool part about this. We have been made new, done, fact, period, end of story. We have been given... Uh, we're going through Ephesians in our life group. We've been given, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, Paul says in Ephesians. God has done all, he's, he's laid all of the groundwork as he recreates us to enable us for success, for successful faithfulness. God says, here's the standard. Here's perfection. You need to follow me in everything. Put on the new man. Right? Reject malice and anger, wrath. Be humble, kind, meek, patient. And we say, oh, holy cow, that is, I can't do that all the time. <laughs> That's hard. And God says, I know. 
That's why I've given you everything you need to be able to do that. I have given you every spiritual blessing that you need. I have remade you so that you can follow me. You are remade and we are striving to be remade through sanctification, right? We are being made more and more holy as we live this Christian life. We are being conformed into the image of Christ throughout our life. Man, I'm, I'm behind. I love this stuff. We are called uh, to obey, but God has already given us what we need to obey. This is an impossible task in our own strength. But He is kind and gracious toward us. Believers are made new. In verse 18, he says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All this is from God. And he goes into, he starts to show how Christ sets the standard. Because we are made new, because of what Christ has done for us, we are now to recognize, right, we we conclude with Paul that he died for us in our place. And he's clarifying, when Christ died for us, He reconciled all things to himself. He said, there is this gap, and you have no hope of crossing this gap to get to me, so I'm going to die in your place. Close that gap. Now we can be in relationship. I'm doing all the work here. You have no hope without me. Right? Jesus says, I will make a way. He says, I am the way. Right? The truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So he says, now I've set the example. I came to you in your sin, in your brokenness, when you were dead in your trespasses, as it says in Ephesians, and I closed the gap. Now, Go do that with other people. Show them that I have closed the gap. Your task is to finish the work that I have started. That's why he says, therefore, right, he's entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. This is where Paul says, if you reject me, you reject God. God is making his appeal through me, and we know that. Obviously, this is scripture. God is clearly speaking through Paul. And he says, if you reject me, you reject God. That is one of the reasons why we cannot ever say that one part of the Bible is more inspired than another part of the Bible. Right, there are lots of verses that talk about how Scripture is inspired by God. It's the Word of God. It is complete. And we can get into that one-on-one if you have questions about that. But to reject what God says over here is, is to do exactly that. To reject what God says. We don't get to say the words of Jesus. I'll listen to those, but I don't, I don't like Philemon or, or Revelation. That's too confusing or, or weird. So we're just not going to worry about that. It's all the word of God. We don't get to pick and choose. Just as the Corinthians don't have the authority to tell Paul he's not an apostle, we don't have the authority to tell God this is not important. This isn't your word. I don't don't want that. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We now take on this task. This has been passed down from generation to generation for 2,000 years. And it's come to us. 
And we are now ambassadors for Christ. It is our job to call people to reconciliation. Now, one implication there is it's kind of hard to tell somebody you need to be reconciled to Christ if you're not reconciled to them. This is very difficult. We are stewards that have been given many things from God. And our testimony, Paul here throughout this book is is referring back to who he is. Later, he's going to quote, or he's going to retell of all his suffering in chapter 11. It's astonishing how much he suffered. But his, his appeal, right, these people that he's confront, that he's, uh, that are opposing him, they are appealing to the outward appearance for their, to, 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 for their claim to apostleship. Paul says, I'm weak. I'm a weak man. You want to know why I'm, a, why I'm an apostle? It's because God has called me to be an apostle. What's the evidence of that? Look at how I've endured suffering. That's what he points to. Look at how I have endured suffering for Christ. My life is meant to point people to him. And, and, and I have suffered with beatings and shipwrecks and drifting at sea and weather and all kinds of you know, hunger, exposure. He goes through his whole list. His life aligned with the message he preached. We are called to join, in, join with Christ in his work. And as we do that, our life will be a testimony to who he is and why people need reconciliation. We try to persuade them to show them that it's good, that they need it. Uh, but remember, this is a desperate reality for billions of people. This is not just, we're not just trying to make them comfortable or protect our own comfort, right? Oh, that, that person, they, they kind of smell bad, so I'll let somebody else do it. Like, no. We are to be ministers of reconciliation with Paul. We don't get a choice in that matter. <laughs> we are ambassadors for him. When you think about the qualifications for an ambassador, right? The president appoints the ambassadors but he's going to look for someone who's qualified, who hopefully has experience, someone who hopefully will be successful in what they're doing. What's God's qualification? That you believe in him. That you surrender and say, I don't have anything to offer. That's the qualification. That you have nothing to offer, but you trust him. And when you do that, You are now an ambassador for Christ, whether you like it or not. Now, hopefully, you do like that. (laughs) Hopefully, your love for Christ says, yes, I love this. How can I go tell somebody about this? They need to know. They need to know what Christ has done for me, right? Telling the gospel doesn't have to be apologetics, right? Philosophy. You don't have to have a degree from seminary to share the gospel, I know that most of you know this. But remember, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are called to live that life. Paul says all over the place, live a life worthy of the calling. Live a life worthy of your calling. Paul here is saying we are ambassadors for Christ, whether you like it or not. And one day, as he's already said, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for everything we've done. Verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is unthinkable. That the Logos the second member of the Trinity who has existed from eternity past was not created, has all power and authority, would come down in the form of a human, would suffer with us. 
so that we can become the righteousness of God. He became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. I mean, that's far beyond ironic, right? That's unthinkable. And yet, he knew that that was necessary. That's what it was going to take for him to become sin for us. Because only Jesus could pay the penalty that we owed. We, I, there is no way for me to bear the sin of any of you. I've, I can't bear my own sin. I, I, I don't have any way to pay back the penalty that I owe for my sin, let alone anyone else's. But Jesus, because he is God in the flesh, is able to bear that weight, to pay that price, and he's able to endure it. And God raises him from the dead and gives us hope for new life. If, if you don't know Jesus, some, of, some people think they know Jesus because they want to do the right things. They're focused on the outward appearance. Paul says, that's not it. It's not it. It'd be nice if that was all, because then we'd be in control. But we don't make the rules. We break them. (laughs) Jesus came and died in our place. And, And we don't get the reward unless we surrender in faith. I hope that you choose to do that. There will come a day when you will no longer have that ability to make that choice. It will be too late someday. Philippians 2 says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will one day recognize who Jesus is. My prayer is that you do it willingly of your own free will rather than out of compulsion later because you realize you screwed up and you missed it. If you are a believer, you have been made new. It doesn't matter how you feel about that. The devil wants to put us down and forget that we are a new creature. To the very core of our being, we are different. And it does not matter what you do. You have been made new. Our task is to continue to trust the Lord, not just for our salvation at conversion, but to guide us through this life to continue to sanctify us and make us more like him. You will fall. And for those who struggle with this, it's because you're usually it's because you're you're falling all over the place. And the enemy says, "Ah, screw up." Jesus says, "I've already made you new. It's a done deal." We have a responsibility to walk in obedience, to put on the new man. But we've got to internalize this truth, this fact that we have been made new. But we're not to just sit on our hands after being made new, right? We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. My prayer tonight is that you would represent him well. If you have questions about any of this, um, you can talk to me or any of the pastors. There are lots of people in this room who know their Bibles. Find somebody and ask them. Um, Doesn't have to be a pastor. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would not let us go until we have heard, until we have truly heard what you are saying to us. Father, even as we go from here or watching online, do not let us go Jesus, transform us. 
And for those of us who have been made new, Father, sanctify us. Give us a deeper understanding of who you are. Father, help us to walk in the confidence that you have given us every spiritual blessing. And we, as we submit to you, have everything we need to see victory in our lives, right? Victory of holiness, of faithfulness, regardless of who sees us, of how many followers we have. Continue to move in us. Help us to understand your word. We need you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.